talking icebergs, the heart of the ocean, and being drawn like one of your French girls. We saw that in a Nickelodeon once. This is James Cameron's Titanic. You know what the thing is, is that if you don't interact in the world and you don't do anything and all you do is stay in your house all day and not go anywhere except for like maybe outside to breathe air or like to a Dunkin' Donuts every once in a while or a grocery store. You really don't have anything to talk about. Mm. Life has become very boring lately. I mean, there's been pros and cons to it. I mean, I've said, and I've said before coronavirus even broke out, that, oh, God, I wish I had more time to spend at home, and, you know, I wish I could just be home all the time. And, yeah, I, I do obviously want to work and contribute to the community, but at the same time, I love the idea of being home. It's my sanctuary. It's my safe place. And I'd have more time to read and watch my history specials and stuff and really enjoy it. And now, you know, be careful what you wish for because now we're home all the time. Yeah. That Although I'm not sick of it yet. I do miss family and stuff, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I was supposed to say that. That was, that was very well played. <laughs> so I don't know. Do Could we share? Worse. Do we share with the listeners that we've been fighting the squirrel war lately? Oh, God. I don't listen to enough like home improvement podcasts or anything like that. But maybe we should start any. Yeah, maybe we should start anybody out there who's got any tips. If you've ever dealt with squirrels, uh, I would love to know what 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 that battle was like because we've got these little bastards. And I I used to think they were adorable. I used to think they were hilarious. We'd see them in the backyard all the time, and they'd be climbing on trees and doing acrobatics. And I thought they were really funny and kind of cute. And uh, not so much now that they've literally borrowed the... I didn't even know they were able to do this. They could chew through wood and they can chew through vinyl siding. Mm-hmm. So there's now a hole in the side of our house where they've made a nest in one of the walls and mm-hmm. um, now have... And we paid for the wildlife people, not really exterminators, but the yeah. wildlife people to come and set up one-way exits for them so they can get out but they can't get back in and then lo and behold within less than a week crafty little bastards they've figured out ways around one of that the squirrels shit. has already found a way to completely damage yeah. the the wool steel wool or whatever it is yeah. that they install so that they can't chew through it right it's it's really stupid well as a change of pace you didn't you guys didn't come here for that <clears throat> right hey everybody welcome to another episode of movie high low a podcast discussing the best and worst that cinema has to offer this is dom and this is danielle and you, you're doing you're bringing that back mm-hmm. you're bringing back the, the it better known as tag mm-hmm. otherwise known as otherwise aka known as, aka I, and this week is a uh is a real treat i would say for well me. well for you for sure uh, this is um it's my favorite movie it's uh, is this your favorite? Is this your? I mean, it was always favorite? Dirty Dancing, and then this movie came out, and then the, I mean. So you would, but you would qualify this as like your number probably, one all time favorite. Yeah. Wow. I mean, the more I think of it, I, I try to act like, oh well, I do love Eternal Sunshine. I mean, I do, but it's like Titanic. Like I always had and continues to have a special place in my heart. It only took us eleven episodes to get to your favorite movie in this podcast. Isn't that nice? Mm-hmm. It goes to eleven. I know we haven't done Fight Club yet. They go to eleven. We haven't done. That's technically your favorite movie, right? Fight Club or American Psycho or Eternal Sunshine or Goodfellas over The Shining. I mean, it's, I, 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 kinda, I would think Fight Club is your favorite at all. It was. It was for a very long time. I, I don't know if I've evolved. It dropped in rank? It's it's in my all-time favorites. Um, but we'll, we'll get to Fight Club at some point soon. But this week, we are talking about 
um, Titanic, directed by James Cameron, released on December 19th, 1997. This is a high episode. Uh, says who? Well, the consensus Me. at IMDb, Danielle is definitely <laughs> someone who says um, that this is a great episode or a high episode because, you know, as you've already admitted, it's, one, it's your favorite movie. Um, it's a 7.8 on IMDb. It's got an 89% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It won 11 Oscars. I mean, right. this thing fucking swept up. It cleaned up on Oscar night mm-hmm. um, and also kind of has one of the most kind of embarrassing Oscar moments of all time with James Cameron screaming, I'm the king of the world. Yeah, it was pretty pitiful, but that's all right. If anyone's allowed to say it, it's him. I'm the king of the world! (laughs) Well, the thing that's funny about it is, and this is is 110% the truth, I have always been a huge fan of Celine Dion. My my family has French-Canadian heritage. We always, you know... Love Celine Dion. I grew up loving Celine Dion. And when I would go to school, you know, it would be inevitable you'd share music that you like or what you're into or sitting on the school bus listening to your Walkman, Discman, and having Celine Dion CDs. And I would be made fun of all the time because, you know, people thought, oh, Celine Dion, my mom likes Celine Dion. You're such a loser, blah, blah, blah. Then Titanic came out. And then for a short period of time, wow, all of a sudden she's cool, right? And then after a couple of months of that, people get sick of it and movie and everything. So that dwindles and now all of a sudden, you know, she's obnoxious again and nobody can stand her. But I never stopped loving Celine Dion. And that's also a big part of the reason that I love this movie. You never let go is what you're saying. Right. You never let go. I never let go. I still love Celine. And you took me to see her in December and it was so I did. That was was a lot to suffer through. But it was, uh, I was happy to see you happy. That was fun. So the thing I think probably it's worth getting out of the way is that Titanic is one of those interesting movies where it's got this, it's got this legacy of being very well loved, very well beloved, and very well, um, you know, I mean, critically, it's a critical darling. It it won all these Oscars. It's very much a at for the for the longest time it held the you know number one spot in terms of um, you know being the biggest financial success worldwide over a billion dollars. Right. You know, since then, like you've got Avengers. It was and like other number one in the box office for like forever, nine months, forever. ten months. What well, is it? it was, but but this well, is an entire year it was number one. Every this weekend. is the interesting thing. This is kind of the fascinating thing to think about Titanic when you look back on it is that it's one of those things where. It was so popular and so successful and so loved that after a while, that almost became a detriment to it. Mm-hmm. It almost became that like people now kind of have a shit taste in their mouth when they think of Titanic right, just because. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like one of the other movies I always think about is like Forrest Gump, I think is the, the perfect example to make, which is that Forrest Gump, I think, you know, there are people that feel one way or the other about that movie. I think you could certainly... I think it would be very hard to not mount an argument that it's a great film. But you could mount the argument that it's not a great film because it was shoved down people's throats for so long that people kind of got Forrest Gump fatigue. And to a much, much greater extent, I think you see that with Titanic, is that just after a while, it was like this movie played in theaters for over a year. Mm-hmm. You know, that was people unprecedented. I mean, after I never while, did, but I know in general the audience did. It's a movie that I think... Um, Part of its legacy is that it it was so popular that after a while it became hard to like it. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna I'm, I'm I'm at least gonna try and have an open objective view of it. I've got quite a few highs written down and I've got quite a few lows written down. 
But I want to let you lead this because this is, like you said, your favorite movie. So why don't you start off with, with telling us about the film? Why don't you, do you have a synopsis? Yeah, the synopsis. Yeah, let's see the synopsis. Poor little rich girl, Rose DeWitt Bucator, is to be wed to the man of her nightmares when a handsome, fearless young vagabond named Jack Dawson swoops into her life. Together, they embark upon a whirlwind romance aboard the ill-fated Titanic, all while trying to evade her controlling fiancé and domineering mother. That's when disaster strikes the unsinkable liner in the form of an unexpected iceberg. Will Jack and Rose's love affair be doomed, or will they be saved in every way a person can be saved? You jump, I jump, right? <laughs> Nicely done. Sorry, I was. So, uh, I had, I had, now I had if I could just bullshit in my throat, spe- I was coughing up. Do you want me to say it again? Or? No, it was good. It was good. You did a nice job. Um, this movie, as it, I'm sure a lot of other women can attest to, and I can't even just say women, I'm sure there's men out there too, but particularly women, that this movie has spoken to and still find timeless and such a wonderful romantic movie um, to this day. You know that Leonardo DiCaprio for eons has had a legion of fans all over the world and again, particularly female, it's like one of those things that it's almost a joke. It's any woman I've ever met, girl or woman, if I've ever had the conversation about this movie or anything with Leonardo DiCaprio at all, they typically are like, oh yeah, he's so dreamy or oh, he's so handsome and or he's so hot, whatever. It's like I haven't, it's harder to come by somebody who doesn't find him attractive than does. But this movie was so pivotal for me in my 12, 13 year old age range when it first came out. I remember feeling like I mean, I was coming of age, but not, I mean, it sounds so cheesy. Like what I watched the movie and I got horny or something like, it's not like that. It's, it's a little bit no, more complex not at than all. that, but it just, it spoke to me for all of, I was always interested in history. I liked things that were older or antique. I liked old TV shows and older music and, you know, my sense of style was never like anyone else's. I was always, I guess, marching to the beat of my own drum, if you will. And I, I always kind of hated things that were popular and maybe that's not a good thing either because I mean I liked what I liked but at the same time if something was popular I, I inherently didn't like it because it was popular so this movie as an example like when it did become really popular it was a little bit annoying I guess because it felt like this was something that was mine because I already already loved Celine Dion for instance and you know and that became a big part of why this movie was you know it I don't know, caught well, on in a big way too. That song right. is definitely a big and then and then and then it, it went the opposite direction and it and, you know and it became its well, own doing. If you, if all you're hearing is that song on the radio or like in any Walgreens, but you, you have into. to understand. I mean, I was always somebody who's musically inclined and I loved to sing. And Celine was always a favorite of mine. She was one of my biggest influences. And so when this movie came out and then she did the song, it was like this movie was made for me. You know, mm. it spoke to me, and I'm sure a lot of other girls can attest to that too. It spoke to me on a, a deeper level than just, you know, being entertained or, wow, Leo's hot or I wish I was Kate Winslet, you know. It was more than that. I loved the costumes. I loved the music. I mean, James Horner's score is so haunting and one of a kind and it it's so perfect, you know. You can't you can't touch it as far as I'm concerned and, and there's not a single time that it's been on that I'm, I'm sick of it or, oh, been there, done that. You know, I'm always quoting it and... There are a couple of lines that are a little on the cheesy side, mm-hmm. and I know that. I mean, it's it's a romantic movie. It's a romantic movie with a lot of action because it's James Cameron, of course. Um, but 
This movie, in a weird way, it feels like it was made in a laboratory, right? Because this is a movie that it was made I think, in a tank in Mexico. But it, it was. It was made in a tank in Mexico. Well, all the waters, yeah, the and ones. and apparently that tank was was doused with PCP at one point and got everyone high. But that's I a whole. I thought you said it was the food supply. The food supply. I'm, that's what I mean. But like, what I mean by like if this was made in a laboratory is that this is a film that was clearly designed to appeal to the widest possible audience in the world, right? First of all, you've got. It's a. It's at the time the biggest budget that any film has ever been made for. I mean, two hundred million dollars now doesn't sound like a whole lot of money because because James Cameron was trying things special effects wise that had never been done before. Right. Too at that point, they were really pushing the boundaries in terms of, of in terms of what you could what you could do with special effects and what you could do with um you know the marriage of practical effects and special effects. Right. So you've got this huge huge budget. You've got this historical tragedy this 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 backdrop something that immediately i mean this is the thing that i think about is that i can't tell you how many field trips i remember our school was like bussing kids out to go see this movie when it was in theaters because it had this historical element to it so there was this big historical backdrop that made it suddenly more reverent or something suddenly more important or suddenly more um Timely. I don't. I don't. I don't know exactly poignant. what it was. Yeah, it was more poignant in, at, at the time that it came out because of of the history of it. It was. It was the this huge budget movie that was covering this real tragedy. Um, it's also got very much. I think is designed for young women. It's a movie that's very clearly in terms of the way that the romance is written is very much written for a twelve or thirteen mm-hmm. year old girl, which is which is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but at and the you same have to time, too, because Leonardo DiCaprio is on the heels of um, Romeo and Juliet. Well, that was how they pitched so the movie. They literally I know they pitched did, the movie as Romeo movie and Juliet out, on the Titanic. That movie before Titanic came out, that was like, what, 95? Two years before. 96? 96, 96, yeah. 95, 96. And that was, you know, just a year or two before. And he was already like a hot commodity. But like, this is what I mean. Lovely this is what I mean. Movie. The and studio then, and then wasn't going to. this gonna, came out and it was right. like, oh. Yeah, print you know, fucking money is what it comes I down wanna to. I want to be Kate Winslet. Right. But, but the point I'm making is that. It's the movie feels like it was designed because it it has the appeal of historians. People who are interested in history are going to love it. Young women are going to love it. Even young men because it's being helmed by a fucking action movie director, the guy who made Terminator 2 and Aliens and The Abyss like so it's it's kind of got this broad mass appeal. It's a movie that's meant for everybody. Everybody can can come to this movie and find something that they can well, enjoy. Well, it's funny it. to me too because when you watch the behind-the-scenes featurettes and, and things with James Cameron, you basically get the impression that he was more interested in the history and the action angle of it rather than the Jack and Rose story. He wrote the Jack and Rose story because he knew well, it was a necessity. Clear. That's very, He knew very it was clear. a necessity. And we're going to get to that later. Do you know what I mean? Yes. But part yes, of what I love, I, I mean, of course I love the historical aspect, but I also love the Jack and Rose story too and am compelled by it. Why don't you start with some of the highs? What do you think are some of the... Because I've, I've actually... I've got quite a few highs for this movie, too. Um, but why don't you start? I'll try and go in order. Um, the very first thing, obviously, being hands down, James Horner's score was just one of the most... Yeah. I mean, think about this movie in the hands of any other film score. We had a conversation about that last time when we were talking about 12 Monkeys. And, you know, David Fincher could have done this movie. And, you know, it would have been... A different movie. I mean, he he's definitely a fitting director for that style, but it would have been a different movie. It's like James Horner. I mean, you could have had any other film score, you know, like Hans Zimmer or um, anybody else, and it would have had a different feel to it. It was just so perfect, and I love that 
you know, if you know the history of it, I mean, the ship was built in Belfast, Ireland, um, and a lot of people, a lot of men ended up dying during the making of that ship because yeah. at the time it was the biggest ship on the planet um, that had ever been made. And then it set sail from Liverpool, England. But um, the use of the bagpipes and the Irish, this sort of like this Celtic chanting, Ooh, yeah. you know, like well, yeah. all that stuff yeah. um, that's in the movie, it's very effective. It's it makes you it feels like it's that time period. It feels like it's that place in the world that's very fitting and beautiful, but also very heartbreaking and haunting too. It's it's just perfect. Mm-hmm. So that's I, I totally agree. Yeah, that's definitely. And a then high it's so movie. tragic because it's like all this music that he wrote about this famous shipwreck or sinking, and then he ended up dying in a plane crash. Mm-hmm. James Horner. Yeah, that's, years later. That's, I think he died. What? Uh, Five years after, yeah, it wasn't. Look. It wasn't long after. I know. Um, the special effects for 1997. Oh, definitely. I, I mean, for that too. time period, it's you can't even touch it. You can't compare it. It's done so masterfully, and that's the thing too, with James Cameron. It's he's he's done Terminator. He's done Aliens. He's done The Abyss. He's done True Lies. All these movies before Titanic that demonstrate how great he is with action sequences and special effects and CGI and practical effects as well. And he utilized all of those things for this movie, but took it to the next level and was, I'm sure, experimenting with things that had never been done before and had a lot of anxiety, I'm sure, because is it going to work? Is it not going to work? Is this going to is this going to translate? But if anyone was going to do it, it was going to be him. So can I interject for one sure. second? So that, that's one of my highest two. I wrote down James Cameron action slash technical and visual effects. So what you're saying is... I'm thinking about the James Cameron movies that I really, really love. And, like, I totally appreciate this movie. I think it's a great film. We'll get to my my qualms with it later. But that's definitely, I think, one of the... This is a technical achievement. Like, there's no, there's no question about the fact that this is a technical achievement as far as filmmaking goes. And Cameron's movies... You know, what's really, really cool about his his use of CGI or his use of or marrying practical effects with with digital effects is that his shit stands the test of time. When I go back and I watch Terminator 2, I feel like the effects in Terminator 2 are so much better than any of the digital effects that I'm seeing in shit now. Like Absolutely. I, I just buy it more. They right. hold up so much but better. He knows what and that shit doing. that was shot in 1990. Yeah. So when you go back and you watch Titanic, I mean, there's a lot of shots in this movie that are... You know, he's he's doing miniatures, he's doing forced perspective, he's doing all kinds of like the old school Hollywood tricks, but he's also marrying that with digital. And and a lot of the movie, you know, it's it's hard to even necessarily pinpoint exactly when what parts CGI. are totally CGI or digital. I think the worst the, the the worst digital effect in the entire movie is at the very beginning when you see the fucking dolphins. Like the dolphins are probably the worst, and that's and that's. I see. I didn't think that. You know, it's funny. I've seen so many behind the scenes featurettes about this movie, so I know when he used a lot of the CGI, and maybe that's why the I can tell when when, 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 the it's the, when it's when it's panning away from the boat, and yeah. it's and it's just left Liverpool, and you can see the people walking around the ship. Yeah. It's like you can tell, yeah. and I also know it's CGI, so I'm, I'm looking out for. It. But I didn't think the dolphins but looked that bad. But but, I'm, but but that's what I'm throwing it at a low velocity. Like what yeah. I'm saying is that the dolphins are the last people don't even fucking remember the dolphins in this movie. And what I'm saying is that if that's the low point of the CGI, that's how meticulously. Um, integrated the CGI was into the movie. But he does a really, really, really effective job of making visual. I mean, the the shot like there's the one shot later 
um, where it's like that tilted Dutch angle where the camera's pulling back and all of the fucking... There's quite the, a few of those tilted rooms, angles as the ship is But I'm sinking. saying, the one shot that I'm talking about when the when all the doors of the rooms are exploding and all the water's pouring out and the camera's pulling back, it's like shot as a miniature and it's just, it's beautiful. It's it's really, really, really well executed. Yeah. Um, the thing I was going to say though with James Cameron and, and his special effects is that this is supposed to be you know how much James Cameron loves history and he loves particularly the ocean and even more in particular than that, the sinking of the Titanic to a degree where it's almost an obsession for him. And he hasn't been able to leave it even since then. He's done all these other documentaries and deep sea diving mm-hmm. um, documentaries and, you know, he could going down the to the wreckage. Right. It was like an obsession for him. Um, but you, my point being, you know how much it means to him. So the integrity of it, maintaining the integrity of the visuals and everything is so important to him. It's of the utmost importance. And to think that this is a ship that at the time, in 1912, it was the biggest ship ever made and that set sail in the world, and he never actually recreated to scale the ship. He did, I think, about half of it mm-hmm. to scale and then had this mirror that he used for the other half to do... Mm-hmm. I mean that's crazy right there i mean like how he could pull that off and it, and you w- and it was seamless you couldn't tell like oh there's a mirror reflecting and it's just masterful and then um the other part of it when the ship is sinking and you see the water blasting through the doors and all that and you see that that was actually from a model like yeah. Yeah, like a little crazy. diorama of a, you know, like a little yeah. model. And, and, but you look at the visual and it doesn't look like no, that. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's he big. is a master it's of his big. craft. It's not, it, there's no, there's, the edges have been buffed. You know what I mean? There's no, it's kind of a rough package. It's, it's, everything is so perfectly settled into where it needs to be and how it needs to be shot at what angle and what lighting and exposure. What I mean, all it's like, you know, he knows his shit, you know? Yeah, no, I, I I love James Cameron. James Cameron is a um, and you always loved him from Terminator. Terminator stuff, so. Two is is I would argue, and we don't have to have this argument now, but I would argue is his best movie. And but I but I he's he's a guy who's yeah he's he's a geek. I mean, this is the thing. Cameron's a fucking nerd, and and his nerdiness is part of what makes him so good because he's interested in all these things. He's interested in the ocean. He's interested in space. He's interested in time, and. You know, he kind of sees the the way that all those things are unified. You know, the way that he explores the ocean in Titanic or in the Abyss is as if he's exploring space. He looks at it that way, like this is space underwater. This is he he he's got you know he's got a very um uh, he's very technically precise, but he's also very much you know um, Spielbergian in the way that he's and he's he's a dreamer. He imagines things. He's he's trying to tap into the audience's unconscious or conscious imagination. I think in this movie, all of his greatest talents are on display. And I also think many of his greatest weaknesses are on display. And and we'll get to that later. But I agree with everything that you're saying. I would also, one one other thing that I really, I thought about while I was watching it this time through, because I've seen this movie quite a bit, but watching it this time through, I was interested. I thought this was cool because I wrote this down as a as a high that I almost would have written this down as a low. I would almost would have written this down as a low earlier, um, which is the present day framing device. Watching this movie this time with like a more critical, like knowing that we were going to do this podcast and talk about it, like part of me almost was going to say, "Why don't we just throw out the bookends of this movie? Why don't we just throw out the whole fucking Bill Paxton thing and all of the setup for that?" I think that? a lot of people like. 
the framing device of the movie, and they like well, old Rose. Well, and well, it's it's and this is narrating the this story is this well. is this is this is how I came around to it. Okay, I came around to it this time around because watching it this time around, I thought about it like I was like, you know what? I never initially liked it because of how it extends an already very long film. I always felt like, do we really need this whole opening thirty minutes and then kind of the bookend to it at the end? But watching it this time, I was like, you know what? I actually think I should put it as a high for two reasons. One, I really like the early exploration shots of the ruined Titanic. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff with them actually bringing those, I, I don't know what you call them. Are they, are they um, uh, sea explorers or whatever those things are that they bring down? Where, yeah. they're, where they're explaining like we're three tons there under the water. There is a name for them. Um, whatever they're called. I'm going to call them sea explorers because I don't know what I want to say something called. like Zoom, but I know it's not it. It's like a... But you know what I mean? A Those, droid thing. They I almost know. look like little spaceships that go yeah. underwater. Yep. Um, all of that stuff, like when you watch those early shots of the movie and that that exploration part of it, mm-hmm. it is really kind of cool. Um, it does kind of feel like they're in space. It reminds me of the abyss. All that stuff makes it kind of makes it cool. And then I like the way Bill Paxton's playing that character where he's narrating to camera. He's saying all this like really cheesy dialogue where he's like, the ghosts of the ocean are, are arriving. And then he turns the camera off and he says to his friend, he's like, yeah, I'm done with that bullshit now. Right. So it's kind of funny that they're playing it ironically that he's purposefully hamming it up for the camera and then mm-hmm. when it's off with his colleagues, he's like, okay, this is, you know. But he's they're really into, okay, this is this fucking boat that's just been at the bottom of the ocean for, you know, decades and look at all the eels that are kind of hovering around and then the way they're going through, you know, the way they have the technology to go through the staterooms and the atrium and all Mm -hmm. the different parts of it. So watching it again now, I was like, I I do really appreciate this kind of framing device of like starting it in modern day or present day. Mm -hmm. And I think, honestly, it's a really smart marketing choice. I think that they would have had a harder time selling this movie as a straight period piece if they did not frame it with Bill Paxton and Old Rose and of all of that stuff. I think they would have been... It makes you a, realize the fragility of what's happening in the story that only, you know it's not going to last. But not only that, if this movie opened and closed in 1912, I think they would have had a harder time selling it to an audience. I think that they that they framed it in a modern day context that they framed it in like, here's technology, here's us sea exploring and going down to the ruins of the Titanic and we find this old woman that was a survivor and she's going to tell us her story. I actually think as a marketing concept was a smart move. I think this movie would have made less money, would have gotten less of an audience if it was just like, hey, it's a movie about the people in 1912. And a lot of movies about Titanic that came before that kind of... They kind of did that, and they focused yeah. more on the upper class too. They didn't focus on the lower class perspective either. Sure. Which well, that's, sadly, that's an interesting. It's a majority too. of the majority of people that died out of the fifteen. I think it's fifteen hundred seventy-five, or it's one thousand five hundred seventy-five people. Yeah, that perished. Mm-hmm. I think that's the right number. Um, and I've got the book right over here, the big book of Titanic newspaper clippings and stuff, and yeah. all the stuff on it. I could probably look it up. I think it's fifteen seventy-five. Um, but like eighty percent of them are people from the third class. Steerage. Yes. Yeah. And, and then that, the next would be second class. And then the most people that survived were yeah, from the upper class. Yeah. And a lot of well, its predecessors, pre- I can't talk right now. A lot of this movie's predecessors, other movies about this subject matter, only kind of focus on the upper class perspective. Sure. Because that's the glamorous one. Like, right. You know, so this movie dares to take you 
into, into different the lower, perspectives. The but I want to speak to what you were talking about yes. before we get away from it and it doesn't fit. Yeah. But when you're talking about in the beginning of the movie where they have the ro- rovers, is that what they would be? Maybe rovers, like, like a whatever, rover, whatever they're called. Because that's what they put in other planets. And that's actually funny what you're saying too, where James Cameron kind of talks about the ocean and, and explores the subject matter of the ocean almost like with more interest as if it was like outer space. They actually say that there's more species that are undiscovered in the ocean. Like we know more about outer space than we yeah. know about the, the, the depths oh, the of the ocean. There's the species in the ocean that we haven't even discovered yet. Yeah. The depths are that great. Yeah. Him being a um, nerd is really brings but, that to the forefront. But the thing I was going to speak to with you were talking about the rovers and exploring the ship in the beginning of the movie. Uh, one of the things I've always loved and I always remember is that juxtaposition of you see this wreckage, you see all like the seaweed and um, algae and everything kind of growing and this and the and the fish and the eels swimming through and the crabs crawling on things and stuff. It's at the bottom of the ocean. And a couple different shots come to mind that I'm like, oh, I love the way they juxtapose it like this. You see the fireplace and then and then the doorway, the doorway to that great hall, the atrium, oh, I think it is. I mean, if that's... And, um, and it's, it's all still the wreckage and as the doors are opening, it cuts to the color and it's back in 1912 again and you hear the, the music just for a few seconds and then it goes back. Yeah. It's like that sensory, the memory, sensory memory, the... The way you can recall it, or like for me as a history lover, when I go, when I've gone to places, the few places I've gone to have only been to Paris as far as like places outside of this country that like I've actually been able to observe anything historically interesting. But when I go to these places, I think about who was there, who are the historical figures that I remember that I know about that were in this place at whatever period of time. And I think about, I touch the wall or I'll, I'll look through here and I'll, you know, whatever I can, whatever I can take in smelling, tasting, feeling. And I like to imagine that this is what, you know, like being in the palace of Versailles. Mm-hmm. Wow. This is where Louis the 14th roamed these hall of mirrors, these, this hall of mirrors and, and thinking about it and pretending to almost be back in that time and, and, and getting lost and all of that. That's something that he did so well in those first few yeah. scenes. And then the, when they show the piano and it's obviously it's under the ocean, it's, corroding and you know parting wonders could you what would it sound like if you tried to play that not only a piano underwater and those steps but it's been under there for 84 years like what would that sound like i'm curious i want to know and they show it and then you hear this like ghostly echo of twinkling keys just ever so much for like just a few seconds but it's so seamless it's it's not like hitting you in the face and again that comes back to james horner too and his Mm -hmm. the way he's able to He's a big part of why this movie was so beautiful. Yeah. You know? I think I think Cameron, to, to everything that you're saying, I think Cameron's really interested in history. I think he's really interested in oceanography. I think he's really interested in a lot of these things that are really uh, fascinating. And the way that he kind of introduces the story is really interesting with these oceanographers going down there into the depths of the ocean and seeing it and having these these shots of, of you know, from what I understand are, are shots. I mean, some of them are recreations or mm-hmm. digital things, but some of them are actual shots of the, the, the real wreckage of the Titanic. And he actually went down there and saw mm-hmm. that. So I, I, I that that part of it, again, I always felt like this is taking us too long to get to the meat of the story. But rewatching it, I can appreciate why they were doing it. And I also think that it really was a, marketing choice i hate to keep putting it that way but it was a marketing choice to say like if we frame it in a modern day context it may be easier to get people uh to come and see this 
predominantly period piece, which, you know, you're, you love period pieces. Me, I have a hard time with them. I have a hard time. I'm a, I'm a modern man, you know, like George Carlin says, like I'm, I'm, I'm someone who, you know, it's hard for me to go back in time. Certain movies, it, it takes me away to, to go that far back unless I'm really interested in the subject matter or the characters. Um, but this is this is a cool way that they do it, and I and I I appreciated it. I appreciated it more on this go around, knowing that we were going to have this conversation. Mm. So, but I also think it, marketing choice that could very well maybe be. But I also think from James Cameron's point of view, it's also I'm such a geek about this. I'm so interested in it, and I want you all to come to along be, with yeah, me, and yeah. I want you to see why I'm so fat. That's why it's three and a half hours. That's why. You know, why can't they just cut to the chase? Why can't they get to the meat of the story? Because I want I want you to know every little th- detail about right. why this right. story is so fascinating. So I want to talk a little bit about performances in the movie because I think my my thought is that people think of this movie and I think the first thing they think of is DiCaprio, right? Which I think is actually a little bit unfair, especially re-watching it. Um, I got a lot of things I want to say about Leo, who I really like as an actor. I think he's a good actor, but he he's fine in this film and I, you know, I think I think I've I think he's better in I think he's much better in many other movies. But Kate Winslet was really the hero of this movie. Kate I mean this movie if if you really go back and watch it objectively, you're you're aware of the fact that well, Kate see, Winslet to me, I is I think it's the same. I mean, I think when people think of performances in the movie, if they're going to think of Leo, they're thinking of Kate Winslet but Kate Winslet Kate Winslet is really the most fully realized character in sure, the movie. Sure, but when you want to talk about performances and if you were to ask someone what they remember or think about the performances from this movie, I don't think Leonardo DiCaprio is the only thing that comes to mind or the first foremost no. person that you Well, I think I think I think people do. I think I think DiCaprio I think it's is both of them. the way you the way we started this is you kind of started with talking about DiCaprio it was like the first right. thing that you had to talk about. So my my attitude is that I think that the 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 audience for this movie is predominantly female. I mean, not not predominantly female. I mean, there there are plenty of you know men who can enjoy this film too. But I think that the way the movie is written is really written and told through the perspective of Kate Winslet's character Rose. Mm-hmm. And I think that she is, in terms of performances, Kate Winslet was really doing most of the heavy lifting in terms of like having to play a character, an actual character, somebody who has an arc, somebody who has to go through something and change by the end of the film because there's quite a few uh, people who don't do that and and that's part of what I want to get into later with the lows. but Kate Winslet, I think she's kind of like the standout performance when you go back and watch this movie objectively and say like, well, who's really doing a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of the acting? Kate Winslet's killing it in this movie. And she also like made very conscious decision like when she made this movie was like the biggest actress in the world and then just did a ton of indie films and and kind of like pulled herself back from being this Hollywood starlet or this, you know, um uh America's sweetheart. I mean, even before she made this movie, I think that's probably where her heart always lied though because if you look at her career before this movie, she was always doing movies that were a little bit obscure and a little bit out there. She's one of those people you could... Heavenly Creatures and Hideous Kinky and Quill. She did tons of like period pieces and she still has done other period pieces. But she's someone you could tell is more interested in being an actor than being a movie star. And that that gives her... I think think you see that even when you watch this movie. You're like, she's really trying to... They said that Gwyneth Paltrow was actually supposed to be cast for this part. It would have been terrible. It would have been awful. That would have been a terrible choice. It would have been a completely different movie, that's for sure. Um, so I think that James Cameron is kind of taking a chance with her 
on this because she wasn't quite the name that Leo was at this point. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, both of their careers were catapulted. I mean, his was already, you know, he was already a name, but even more so after this. And then right. for her, it was like, I'm pretty sure it was supposed to be Gwyneth Paltrow for whatever reason he went. Well, with he was, like, Leo was a name that could probably get you to come to the movie. Ver, you know, I'm sure people who saw this movie for the first time weren't aware of Kate Winslet's career. I'm sure this was, they were being introduced to Kate Winslet in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, if they had done Leo and Claire Danes from... Romeo and Juliet, everyone would have known, you know, but like Kate Winslet was sort of like, we're going to bring in a real actress to like really ground the part. Like there's one role in this movie that actually feels like it's a fully realized character and that's the Rose character. So they had to bring in a real actress who could make it seem like a three dimensional human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's and she's really carrying a lot of the weight in this movie and she's she's really great at it. I wrote down Kathy Bates. You know, just because I, I, I could just watch Kathy Bates do anything. I mean, that's that's also part of the the flaw of it too. Is that Kathy Bates is just so intrinsically likable. Like you're gonna cut her meat for her too, there, Cal. <laughs> it's just everything she says is so fucking yeah. funny in this movie, and it's also great that she's kind of the new money. That she's this person who um, has acquired a fortune and doesn't know all of the. Um, uh, the protocol doesn't know how she's supposed to behave and how she's supposed to act and all the finishing school bullshit. Like she just is raw and says what she feels. And that's why all these other women who are old money kind of look at her like, Oh, that's, it's that vulgar woman. We don't want her around. Um, So Kathy Bates is just super easy to love. And then of course I wrote down Billy Zane. Billy Zane is the best part of this movie as far as I'm concerned. And the reason is, is that Billy Zane Billy Zane's character only exists in this movie for the pure fact that they, the Cameron was smart enough to realize that if he did not put an antagonist in this movie, the only antagonist would be the iceberg. The iceberg okay, <laughs> they had to have a had had to have a um, human avatar, ha ha ha, mm-hmm. a human avatar, somebody to be able to um, uh, play the role of the villain in human incarnate. Um, so that we could have someone to root against uh, and, and someone to create conflict for the love story. And Billy Zane, I think, is a guy who, as an actor, I, watching him in this movie, he's fully aware of the fact that he's playing a one-dimensional, superficial so well. <laughs> prick, but he's having a blast doing it. And that's, that's the part. He's got that face and those eyebrows. The way he talks. They're there. Kind of Tim Curry-esque. Yeah, there. <laughs> yeah he's just, he, just, he just comes, he... he is having a great time with the fact that he's the prick in this mm-hmm. movie. And it's a lot of fun to watch. Like every, just the way, the cadence of his voice, the way he talks. And again, this is, and this, this is one of the highs for me is his performance, but it also becomes one of the lows is that there's nothing redeemable about his character. His character is a one dimensional prick. Mm-hmm. He is an asshole to the bitter end. He does not have a redeeming quality. He does not give a shit about anybody. But at the very least, when you watch the film, you can tell that as the actor, he's having a blast doing it. He's really enjoying playing a villain. Yeah. I'm your fiance. My fiance! Yes, you are! And my wife been practice, if not yet by law, so you will honor me. You will honor me the way a wife is required to honor her husband. Because I will not be made out of fool. Is this in any way unclear? No. Good. Excuse me. No, 
know what else I'm just thinking of actually right in this moment mm-hmm. is that of of what the two quote unquote suitors to Rose represent. Think about the conversation they have at the table in the beginning of the movie where it's, you know, all life is a game of luck. Oh no, no, you know, you can't you can't leave things to chance. Jack is is the symbol of flying by the seat of your pants and being impulsive and being a free spirit. And then he says, um, Cal, Billy Zane, says, no, a real man makes his own luck. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's he's all about by the book, who I can pay off. He's all about like practicality. I don't want to say the logic. That's not really 100% what I think he represents. But you can see how they each represent something completely different based on what their philosophies are too. Like Cal thinks, well, if I have all the money in the world, that's all I need. Then I can have any woman I want and I can do whatever I, I can do whatever I want. I make my own luck mm. versus Jack. Who's like, I like waking up in the morning, not knowing who I'm going to meet, where life's going to take me. You know, very different. They represent two different things. And obviously Rose has been conditioned at this point to think she wants right. what Cal is saying. I, Whimsicality versus practicality. It opens her eyes to something she didn't realize she wanted, or maybe she didn't realize she even was. It's the fucking song Two Princes by Spin Doctors, you know? One man's got diamond in his pockets. This one wants to buy you rockets. Oh, yes, dear. The woman in the picture is me. Wasn't I a dish? I like the whole thing. Um, Love the wardrobe in this movie. I mean, just as much as the music, the writing, the special effects, the acting, the wardrobe and the set design, all of it. I mean, James Cameron cast the actors in this movie based on how closely they resembled the actual historical figures. The John Jacob Astor, the unsinkable Molly Brown, um, Mr. Ismay, EJ, the captain. I mean, all of them. If you look at their portraits in this wonderful book, Titanic, the story of the disaster in the newspapers of the day. Um I've had that book forever. It's a huge, huge book. Um, if you look at the pictures of these people and it looks just like the actors because that's how important it was for James Cameron to capture every last detail right down to exactly how... You look at the photos in the book to see what the ship actually looked like before it went down. And then you look at the movie, it's like, oh my... It's the same thing. It's yeah. it's it's, it, it's creepy. It's like it looks like old pictures of the movie because yeah. it's that close. Yeah. Um, and the costumes, I mean, they're just so gorgeous. Again, I'm, I'm kind of in love with older style wear. No, I, I they wish, did. I wish women still dressed <laughs> like that. I wish we could wear the gloves and, and, you know, the beading and the brocades and the corsets. And it's just so but glamorous that's, but and that's, elegant but and now, beautiful. But wait a second. Well, wait a second. You say that, but then, like, this movie really does get into a very big concept of the, of the class division. And that becomes a very big part of the movie is that, like... So you understand sure. that there are third class, um, and they don't have the beautiful beating and brocades. And all yeah, that. they're locked, and they get locked the fuck down. I know, when, I know. Well, I'm not talking about that. But but what I'm saying is that like then then you got Kate Winslet's character who's kind of almost rebelling against this finishing school mm-hmm. identity when she sees the little girl and she realizes it's a big trap. It's like this is, right. uh, you know, I'm gonna. It's uh, a cathartic. Uh, I'm being I'm being set up to be a trophy wife. Her, her mom is saying at one point where she's just like, well, why, am, why are why we going to send her to college? She's already found a guy. Isn't the whole point of university to find a suitable husband? Rose has already done God, that. That's a real shitty reality. I mean, this is the thing like they for women that at that time, that's too, fucking that movie, horrible. Remember the movie Mona Lisa Smiles? Yeah. That was the 50s. It's very upsetting. The it's whole reason these girls were going to college was to find a husband. And they yeah. were going to college for things that they probably 
you could know, have they excelled were intelligent in, enough. To, they could have. Right. They could have rocked the fucking but boat. The, <laughs> but that's not the point. I, I know to get a husband and and get married and have kids. I know it's that that and that part of it is is really interesting because it does give you a perspective on, you know, kind of how shitty it is to be a woman in this time in this era and not have. And not have choices. choices, not have choice. I mean, that's that's kind of one of the cool things at the end of the movie. I, don't know, I was thinking about when when um, when she survives, and then they ask her, "What's your name?" and she says, "Rose, Rose Dawson. Dawson." And it's not so much that she's like Rose Dawson, like she's writing like RD on her fucking no. notebook. You know, it's more that like I'm claiming an identity. I'm I'm gonna walk away from this tragedy as my own person, as opposed to being, um, you know, Cal's wife or. Jack's wife. I'm I'm gonna be my own person and ride horses and learn to fly a plane and do all the things that I want to do in my life because I, I escaped death. All the things that, truth be told, she said when she had the conversation with Jack. Suppose we go there someday. Right. Suppose you ride right. these and you know all that. That's the whole point. It's supposed to be she's doing all the things that when she was talking to Jack well, they said they would do. But it's also it's also about the idea of and of, she made him a promise. Yeah, and also about the idea of like living a full life, like right. the the idea of. Don't you know if you if you survived a tragedy like that, you would have it, it would I would hope it would wake you up to being like, hey, any day could be the end. Any day could be especially right now when I meet my COVID-19. I know this is and there's a lot of really weird parallels. I wrote a lot of stuff down. I wrote like these are just stray notes that I wrote down where I was thinking about weird parallels to today to what's going on right now is that being woefully ill prepared. Mm. Right. The veneer of everything being okay. Mm. Right now, we live in a society where it's like, hey, everything's our, you know, we thought our healthcare system and everything was okay. And then something happens and we realize how ill prepared we are. It's like you watch this movie There's and you watch people about, who didn't think our healthcare system was okay. But you know, but, but, what I'm, but what I'm saying is that you, you, you weren't expecting this to sneak up on us and, and, and fuck us up the way that it has, the same way that on this boat, you know, they're trying to pretend like it's all, you know, let the band play, everything's fine, but there's not there's not even half enough of lifeboats to get people off this boat when it sinks. Right. You know, and that's kind of like a weird metaphor for today in a weird way. It it, it, it kind of feels very prescient and 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 um you know, makes sense for the world that we live in in a weird way. Uh, it's just one of those things that you, as you're watching it in the context of what's happening in 2020 because people, particularly people in our culture feel impervious to things that they think oh that's not gonna happen to me well i'm healthy i've got a home yeah. I'm, i've been i got my flu shot and i had i wash my hands and do all the things i'm supposed to do and i'm not worried about that you know there's a cure for everything right I'm gonna, you know yeah, they think that they're it's sobering it's very sobering it's very sobering the way the crisis is the great equalizer right um there's the line in the movie when when Cal thinks he's going to buy his way off the boat, and then at the end, the guy throws his money back at him, and he goes, Your money can't save you any more than it could save me. It's it's a it's a great equalizer. I love, one of the things that I always loved about this movie, there's a great shot where the rich assholes who are dressed in their best, and the guy who's ordering, you know, we're, we're dressed in our best, and you know, get it's us like a, brandy. a brandy. Yeah, the Guggenheims. You know? I love the way that Cameron, when... The shit is going down at the end of the you see movie. His eyes, he's like, you cut back to that guy and you see his face when he realizes, oh my God, I'm going to die. Yeah. And those, especially in that time where 
you've got this entitlement. I mean, why wouldn't you feel that you are going to be fine? Because everything always is fine. Somehow, yeah. somebody else will pay for it. Somebody else will be the one. I'm not, I'm not going to be the one that gets sick and dies. I'm not going to be the one that gets locked below deck. I'm the top I'm the top 1%. I'm the upper class. Mm. You know, like, it's not going to happen to me until it's happening to me. Oh my God, it's happening to me? Hence that look, that expression. Which, which in, in a weird way, I hate to say it, as the audience, I found great catharsis in that. I'm watching and I'm like, fuck this guy. Yeah, you're going to drown. And I know it's terrible. It's a terrible thought because no, 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 none of these people deserve well, like to John die. Like John Jacob Astor and his young new bride, Madeline Astor, he actually died, but she ended up surviving. We're all in it together now. And, and it's worse for the third class passengers, for sure, because they locked them in, which I always thought was great that they portrayed that, that they actually showed that in the movie, that that happened, that they would, you know, in in, in the panic, the thought was lock these doors so that they can't get up. You know, and I, I remember one of the characters that this was DiCaprio, one of his friends, is just like, mm-hmm. give us a chance. Mm-hmm. Like, at least, don't don't lock us in here to drown. At least let us get to the top deck and so we can, we're gonna do. you know what I right. mean? It's uh, yep. very, that stuff is very, that stuff is the best stuff in the movie. Right. I mean, the worst stuff in the movie is the romance. To you. Uh, to me. I think it represents what a lot of women, especially when you're young and you're seeing this movie. Yeah. Your knight in shining armor. You'd yes. love to think that yes. somewhere out there, there's a man who would yes. save you in every way a person can be saved. I mean, in all the ways that he does, not just physically, but in the way she comes through for him. Like, who would have thought? Like, how amazed is he when he sees her come down below deck? She could have just as easily gotten on a lifeboat with her mom she and, never, have, and never have seen Jack again. She didn't have to save him. I agree. That would have been the easy thing to do, especially for a privileged rich girl. All right, well, I'm going to go with what's safe, easy, and comfortable. I'm not going to get my dress wet. Do you know what I mean? I agree. I I I I totally um, agree with that. And speaking of under the ship or in the lower decks, another thing that I love about this movie is when it shows the the steam room, the engine room, and it shows how all the mechanics of the ship work. And um, I don't know what all the technical terms are called, but like watching how they would engineer or uh, make a ship like this go. A lot of it was burning coal and steam and all that. Mm-hmm. So I really like those shots. It's really cool and. I know that James Cameron has an affinity towards industrial looking things and smoke and steam and pipes and yeah. flame. And yeah, Terminator 2 ends with lava. Just start on, oh yeah. I always love the scene at the dinner when um, Kathy Bates tells Jack, you know, just start on the outside and work your way in because it's it's daunting. You see all these sil- pieces of silverware and you're like, what, what do I do, you know? And I always remembered that. And anytime I've ever been in a fancy place, a fancy dinner, a fancy restaurant. Yeah, you're like, oh, this is how I, I remember that. I always remember that line. And I always felt like at ease. I'm like, oh, Kathy Bates says, you know, or not really Kathy Bates, but Molly Brown says, start on the outside and work your way in. Okay, so I know what to do now. You know what I mean? I wouldn't have known that before that movie. And I always liked that line and that scene. I mean, the scene, I also like the scene where he's doing the charcoal sketch of her in James Cameron's hand, by the way. That's another little fun fact that I think everybody knows by now that it was actually James Cameron doing the charcoal drawing of Rose and not um, Leonardo DiCaprio's hand. But the line, she goes, you're blushing. I can't imagine Mr. Monet blushing. Does the landscapes. I mean, that scene's classic. I do. I agree with that. And I wrote down as a favorite or as a high for me was PG-13 tits. <laughs> Enough said. But I also thought it was interesting this is this I think is an interesting little bit of hypocrisy with the MPAA because the MPAA is so very famously prude when it comes to nudity. When it comes to nudity, right, 
you, you go to Europe and nudity is not The normal. human body isn't stigmatized. It's not stigmatized. It's not. And it's funny because you can watch PG-13 movies in America that are very, very violent. The reason the MPAA went along with it is because it was done... In the same reason it was okay for schools to take um, their to classes see to see this movie. It's It's... She's laying for a portrait. A lot of artists at the time... Impressionists, neo-impressionists, Pablo Picasso, too, abstract artists. I mean, a lot of artists at the time, and before that, for hundreds of years before that, would do nude portraits. And it wasn't necessarily meant to be sexual. It's the human body. It's, I, it's more scientific I than think anything. That, I think that the fact and it is, that this and it movie is a, was made for $200 million. It wasn't like her top was off the whole time D, or something. It was D. just that scene. And then the only other time you see boobs is when you look at the, the charcoal drawing. The only time you really see her boobs is when she's laying back on the couch. It's not like every other scene her tits are hanging out or something. I'm not saying, I'm saying during the scene where she sits to be drawn like one of his French girls, mm-hmm. you see her tits quite a bit. And I'm not, and I'm not complaining and I'm not even saying that it's offensive. What I'm saying is that the I MPAA under offensive. normal, of course not, under normal circumstances, the MPAA would rate this a rated R movie. Just because of that, just because they would, they but would make them cut non, that. It was actually not a hundred percent. Well, it really wasn't. It can be perceived that it's not sexual. D, even I, though it, is I supposed to be. whatever you want to say about that, I they I, weren't having sex. Wanna, they and weren't. Her boobs ha- are moving, oh or her boobs are. I mean, she did touch her. Touch, put your hands on me, Jack. The scene in the car not long after. Put your, but you can't see D. her boobs. Then it'd be different. That's the line that you'd be crossing with the MPAA. If this movie wasn't made for two hundred million dollars and wasn't distributed by Paramount Pictures and Twentieth Century Fox, I don't think they would have been able to keep those boobs in that movie at a PG-13 rating. That's all I'm saying. And I'm not even complaining. I think that the loophole... And I'm not even complaining. Okay, we know that. I think that the loophole that they managed to to get through was that it's a historical slash artistic context in which her boobs are being displayed. It's not in a sex scene which is what the MPA does not want. They don't want... You can say shit, but you can't say, I took a shit, right? You can say you're a stupid fuck, but you can't say, I want to fuck you, right? It's it's that contrast. And that... It and can't that, be in and a that sexual... Level, and it was sexual, but it wasn't like and that level, in your face. And that level like, of monkeying... That level of monkeying is, is the part where it turns the MPAA into a censorship group and not into this grading system that they're trying to pretend that they are i'm sorry and okay. I, and, I, and again i'm not i can't take that away but i'm, I'm not, telling you that's why they they fine, let that slide fine all i'm saying is that it seems funny that you put boobs in other movies and they get rated r and you put boobs in james cameron's titanic and it's pg-13 and again not complaining but just pointing it out as like this is very clear when you want this is this is a movie that you could bring um field trips to go Children? see this movie Children are allowed to go into the MFA, right? There's portraits in that museum that have half-naked or even maybe completely naked people. Sculptures of naked people. And school-age children are allowed to go in there because it's not people having sex. It's not it's a strip artistic. tease. It's, it's art. Okay. It's the human form through a Presented means of, an of, of an art form of artistic expression, whether it be sculpting or painting. It's... And of course, and will always be to the end of time, you're gonna have plenty of kids that are immature about <laughs> boobs. Yeah, boob. it's, it's hilarious. It's cool. it's not it's not they're not taking it in like an adult. And I guess why would you expect them to? You can't expect them to be more mature than they are. But it's not meant to be sexual. So because of that, 
it's perceived as okay. So this is what I can tell you from the female perspective, all the things that you talked about, like if you were telling your friends, I saw Titanic and Leo was so dreamy and it was such a beautiful love story. All the things that you, you told your friends, I remember hearing like, dude, this, this lady's tits, you get to see her tits. Like the, that's the, all the guys are talking about. Okay. I'm sure. So, <laughs> sure, I believe so that. as a 13 year old boy, like that was what we heard was like, dude, three like, and a half hours. Like when get to the boobs, dude, you understand? When do we get to see the boobs? Like, like, the school's gonna take us there in a bus and we're gonna have to see this lady's tits. It's gonna be awesome. And again, I'm not trying to I'm not I'm not trying to be gross or objectifier, but like it, it, this is I, I just find it to be a slight hypocrisy in the MPAA where, you know, and again, I'm not I'm not saying that nudity should be something that is censored. I'm saying that it's funny where they're willing to make the exception. That's the only thing I'm trying to note is that I feel like if this was another movie that was made for a hundred thousand dollars that showed a woman in the context that was not sexualized, that was more about showing a person's form in a way that was meant to be artistic, I think they'd have less leniency. Or just in a natural state of being. Like I'm, I think they'd have less leniency than what they have when you spend $200 sure. million dollars sure and you have true. major distributors. And they say, we have to get this to the most amount of people. Because if Titanic was rated R and not rated PG-13, it would not have made a billion dollars. Right. It would have made... Less than half of that. Right. Because of the rating. I understand. That's all I'm trying to say. And I will leave my political leanings there. Why don't we take a break? We'll come back. And I'm sure there's plenty more. There's plenty more. I have here and here for highs. Okay. Let's come back. We'll do some more highs. And then I would love to talk to you about a couple of my lows. Okay. All right. Put the coat on her! So we're back and let's talk more. I'm sure there's plenty more highs we have to, to get into. Well, I think it's easy to love the rebellious nature of Rose's character. Um, now, at no moment was more apparent than, well, I guess, I can't even say that because that wouldn't be true, but um, in this particular moment, it was very apparent of her rebellious nature was when Lovejoy is coming after them after um, they did the sketch and they're trying to lose him. They're trying to walk and get away from him. And then he catches up to them and so now they have to run, you know. And they're going down the elevator and everything and he gets up to the elevator just in time for it to close and go down and you see her give the finger. I always like that scene where she gives yeah. him the finger. Yeah. Because it's, I don't even know if giving the finger was some people did back then. I wonder if it's an improv thing. Probably. But I always like that scene. Um, And then after they come back and, you know, she says when they figure out that the iceberg struck the ship and that it's going to go down and all that, you know, she goes, we got to tell mother and Cal and they walk back and then Lovejoy slips the diamond and the coat and all, you know, uh, you know, everybody knows all that. Right. Um, I got to talk a lot about that. Later. Okay. But, um, then, uh, Cal slaps her across the face and he goes, nothing was a little whore, right? Or nothing is a little whore, is it? And he slaps her and, um, you know, she's kind of still, she's not crying or anything, but she's, touching her face and you can tell she's just still in the moment of being hurt when the steward comes and he's telling them to put on their life vest and and it's quite cold out tonight the the captain suggests top coats and top hats top hats and coats and then he comes into the room and she still has her hand on her face and her head's kind of tilted and he goes not to worry miss i'm sure it's such a precaution and it's just funny because it's like he thinks she's upset because of the you know we gotta put our life vest on to get outside it's like 
dude, you don't even know the half of it. Like, yeah. I always thought that yeah. part was funny. I like to try a few practice swings over there. Okay, that's enough target practice. I mean, it's funny. Yeah, there's some nice moments of levity. There's a couple of good. Well, jokes I like. I like that. It's like, wait, wait, go try, go, go try a few practice swings over there, and it's like, she hits it one time. Okay, good. No, I hit a second time. It's like three feet away. It's like okay, all right, that's enough practice. <laughs> it's just funny. Um. Oh, yeah. I mean, the scene that does it to me every time. She's getting lowered in the lifeboat. And she's looking up at him and the firework going up over his head and the way the music is and everything and the images and everything that the ride that the movie's taking you on to this point. You're just like, oh no. And then she jumps. It's more when she jumps back on the boat that I feel like I get emotional because it's like. Yeah, she came back. Well, right. that, that, that Love scene. Love will conquer all. Yeah, you that know? scene, that seems beautiful. I've, and, I've, uh, or that I'm not afraid of death. I'm more afraid of not having you. You know what I mean? The whole, when she goes back to, to save him, when he's handcuffed at the bottom of the boat, he's at the master of ar- at arms. You know, I mean, like I said, she could just as easily gone on the lifeboat and been like, and chosen that path. I'm just going to stay safe and, and, and rich and, and, and have this life for myself. But no, she chose love. She chose, she knew that if, if Jack even did survive, that their life wasn't going to be, uh, it would have been charmed, I suppose, but not because of materialistic things. It would have been charmed in a different way, but she was willing to forego all of the materialistic things. It didn't matter. It was, it was the love that she had with him and, and the way that he really saw her because he sees people, you know, he saw her for who she really was. And, and through all, all of that, saw that she was actually an amazing woman. And so that's a beautiful, powerful thing. Like, the not being afraid to die. I mean, sh- think of how scary that would be going down to the bottom of the ship and you see it sinking. Or even scary to be him, handcuffed down there in the boat sinking and thinking, no one's coming back for me. Well, her jumping, her jumping back on the boat, the thing about that scene that makes it really, uh, you know, what you're explaining is that they makes that scene powerful. so... What makes it what makes it so powerful and so emotionally charged is that I think that you know it, it's again it's this is this is kind of geeky shit but like what does the audience know versus what do the characters know right she gets in the boat and she's being told to accept the fact that get in this boat you'll be safe I'm gonna get in another boat and be safe too mm-hmm. right that's what Cal is saying. That's what Jack is agreeing to. He's got a. He's got yeah, a. See, there's an agreement. There's something worked out. Yeah, and it won't benefit you. You know, you fucking no. filth. You know, there's all that no. Shit. Uh, but but she gets in that boat and she accepts the fact that I'm gonna be safe. You're gonna be safe. And then something tells her, without her being told directly, mm-hmm. I can't leave you right now. If I leave you, this will be the last time I see you. Right. If I leave and she you knows, right and now, she's smart. She it. knows, right. And when she jumps out, it's her saying that like I'm not taking a risk right now. I'm not taking a chance that, that I'm never going to see you again. You know, right. this is this is I'm willing to go down on the ship with you if Well, it's literally it you jump I jump, right? Right. Which is which is beautiful, which is very which is very sentimental and very beautiful and I understand why that's so effective. I have also posited that that scene is a direct direct rip from Terminator 2 the scene where the where the where the T800 is being lowered into the fucking molten lava to be you know a diesel and there's another chip and it must be destroyed that it's 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 that scene and then John he's I mean DiCaprio's got the same fucking John Connor haircut as John Connor and T2 and that maybe it's Cameron's kind of leaning on one of his greatest one of his greatest scenes and one of his you know he's kind of doing a little bit of a little bit of a um uh, a cover song to it which is cool 
And I got no problem with that because if you do something great and you want to have an echo of that in another film, I understand. Well, speaking of moving and poignant and powerful and painful and and then it shows the um, older couple. Oh, Although God. I guess the old couple was supposed to be, they were supposed to be, I can't remember the name now. They were supposed to be somebody. I got to look in the book and I'll find I out. Wrote the, I wrote on a series of great images and right. there were... There were three images in the movie that really permeated, that really like stuck out to me. And the first is the image of the woman who's floating in the atrium after it's been flooded. Yeah. Very, very beautiful, but very haunting image. Mm-hmm. The In the montage that's set up by the band, which is the band is another thing that I wrote mm-hmm. down as, as of course. A, you know, just that idea that. And it's they so, actually it, did. It's so easy to parody it now or to make fun of it now, but the idea that I remember the first time I watched the movie, more than Jack and Rose, more than anything, like that image of the band continuing, like mm-hmm. they break and then one by one they come back well, together. Well, one starts to keep playing. Oh my God. I remember mm-hmm. that fucked me up watching. I was like, this is fucking right. beautiful. Mm-hmm. This is really uh, like emotional. And then it sets up this beautiful montage. Like when they keep playing that. Right. All that violin music, and it cuts to. I think it's to, near my God to thee. Near my God to thee, and they cut to what's his name winding back the clock, and then it cuts to the old couple in bed. That was the other mm-hmm. image: the old couple in the bed Irish holding mother. their hands while the while the room fills with water, mm-hmm. and then the Irish mother who's telling the. You She's know, telling about a bedtime story. Even before that, it's like it's so sad when when um, the guy that's rooming with Jack, Sven. No, not Sven. What the, what the fuck is his name? Tommy. And um, he's he's saying, at least give us a chance, all the things you mm-hmm. were saying about that. And it shows the Irish mom and her two kids. And, and mommy, why won't they let us up? Well, they're just getting a boat for the the first class passengers. And, and then after that, they'll be calling us. The whole time. And, and they're going to call us next. We want to be ready. Won't we want to be ready, won't we? You know, like, even then, she's trying to maintain this veneer of everything's fine. We're and be every okay. single one of these characters that we're talking about, to me, is more interesting than Jack and Rose. As characters, that that's the fatal flaw of the movie. What do you think are your lows? Do you have any? Well, I had a couple. Um, there were lines that I thought were a little corny even back then, but I could forgive it because I loved the movie so much. I like the scene where they're in the car under the ship, and he beeps the horn and goes, "Where to, Miss?" And she goes, "To the stars." I always thought that was so lame and heavy-handed. Like it is romantic, and yes, I guess a lot of people would think a lot of things about this movie are cheesy and corny, but. That line, I was just like, oh, God, that's so lame. Um, and then, I always thought it was really, really corny. And then, um, of course, right, right. So, and then not long after that scene, when the ship strikes the iceberg, and she says, when the ship docks, I'm getting off with you. And he goes, that's crazy. She goes, I know, it doesn't make any sense, but that's why I trust it. I always thought that line was so, again, so lame, like, but that's why I trust it. I'm like, I don't I don't know what it is. It's like, I can deal with corniness to an extent, but sometimes it's like, okay, all right, we get it. You know what I mean? It's just, it's like right over the head. It's a little too much. It's like, all right, now you're just putting the sugar, you're, you're literally opening my throat and pouring the sugar right in. Like, I get it. I get it. Of course, it doesn't make any sense. That's why I trust it. Like, shut yeah. up. Right? Um, and there's a couple other lines that are like that, I guess, like, I don't know. I mean, the whole I'll never let go thing. I remember the first time I saw it, it being really effective in the second time. And then after probably like the second or third time feeling like every time it got to the I'll never let go, I'll never let go. It was, it was such a thing that everybody would always say. It was like, it was a joke almost. It was like, I'll never let go. I'll never let go. Like, do you know what I mean? 
Yes. It wasn't. Yes, it, I know what you mean. It lost its efficacy, or I don't know. Can I tell you some of my lows? Sure, because that's really um, all my lows. It is the most stock bullshit romance. Of, like, you know, the rich girl meets the boy from the wrong side of the tracks. Yeah. Like, it, this is. This is in a slightly different context, but yes, the formula. It's the most formulaic, simplistic, paint by the numbers romance. It's weird because it's like I see what you're saying, but at the same time, I still feel the connection to it. I still feel moved by it, and I think it's something to do with the fact that it's a life and death type of scenario. It's not just like the another example I think of. Of course, it was years after the fact, but I know there's tons of movies that have that formula of like you know, the privileged girl and the guy from the wrong side of the tracks and like a uh, karate kid even, there you go, right? That's kind of an example of that sort of formula. You know, she's the good girl that, you know, is more to do and he's kind of, you know, new mm. to the neighborhood and mm. poor. I mean, his, his mom has to start the car and you push it. I mean, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But there's, it's not like the life and deathness of it so much. So it's yeah. kind of, you don't feel the same way and there is a certain amount of wish fulfillment. Sure, I think... Like I said, I mean, what girl watching this movie didn't want to be Kate Winslet or, you know, most girls yeah. that felt moved by it, wanted to be, and what girl didn't want to be saved? Who didn't want their knight in shining armor, their handsome, creative, fearless, charming knight in shining armor? I mean, right. who didn't want... Of course, it, yeah, it is a certain amount of the wish fulfillment and all that stuff, but, but at the same time, it's like, to those who are hopeless romantics in a way, you kind of want to believe that that love is out there. Other than it being the most kind of quote-unquote stock, simple, romantic story of all time is as a low, the second low I have is that there are no real characters in the film. They're all caricatures. With the exception of Kate Winslet as Rose, who has an arc, who has an actual starts as one person and ends as another person, learns something over the course of the story and changes Every other character she's in this a dynamic movie, character. yeah, she's a dynamic character. Every other person in this movie is a static character. Every other person is a caricature. And this is what I would say: is that Jack Dawson does not have one, one single character flaw. There's not one thing wrong about this guy, right? He, when he's confronted with these rich assholes, he's confident. He knows every correct move to make while the ship is sinking, right? He's like, we have to get to this part of the boat. Or, okay, when the boat's sinking, you have to hold your breath and because kick your feet. Because he's a survivalist. I, I mean, but, but what I'm, what he's I'm, had to survive. But what I'm saying is that this guy, is he's talking about how he's fucking bumming around Europe and he's sleeping under bridges. This guy should look like he smells bad, okay? Mm-hmm. And really what he looks like is that he's got a perfect fucking manicure and like $40 worth of fucking leave-in conditioner in his hair. Like, I don't buy that this dude is a peasant or a guy trolling around Europe by by his wits. But that's where you have to say it's also a movie. Because are, are you going to fall in love with a guy that I, actually looks like he smells bad? And is covered I mean, in soot? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, come on. So there's two things that happened in this movie that I think would have made this character intrinsically more interesting, right? There's a scene in the movie where... Um, they plant the the heart, the, the heart of the ocean on him, and they're trying to make it look like he stole it. La Cour de la Mer. Okay. Watching it this time, I'm like, it would have been so much more interesting if he did steal the heart of the ocean, or he did steal some money from Cal, or like, if there had been some well, kind the of... the audience wouldn't love him the same way. Th- there needed to be something that 
uh, DiCaprio's character did to, to give him, him a little bit of dirt, a little bit of something to make you really see him as a person and not as just the guy who knows, always does the right thing and always knows the right thing to say and do. I actually remember watching this movie and I remember getting to the end of the movie when they're saying, hey, there was never a guy named Jack Dawson on this boat. And they're telling her, this guy didn't exist. He wasn't on the manifest. And she's like, well, there never would have been or whatever she says. You like know a, why his name wasn't on there because he won the ticket. I, I. But what I'm saying is that because he's so idealistic and so perfect and so flawless and he's so... He's more of an idea than an actual person. If, if, if he had been like the... Tyler Durden that was the thing that He's Rose like had King to Arthur. invent uh, Rose had to invent to get off the boat mm-hmm. to survive the experience. I almost would believe that more because He's not a real character. Like that's where it's a little bit of I hate to use this analogy or term, but it, it is a little bit girl porn e. Like I mean, my entire life was a barrage of cotillions and regalias. I felt like I was in the middle of a crowded room screaming at the top of my lungs and all the while no one even stopped to look up. Like she's saying that her life has become that. Yeah. So it's freeing to, liberating to be with this guy who sees me for who I am and is exciting and is teaching me how to hawk a and we're going to ride side. It's exciting. Oh, it's like freeing yeah. me from the confines of this this corset, the, the corset representing yeah, the being, way she's confined. Up and, and That's why you like in. that scene. And I... It almost, to me, when I always saw that scene, it was almost like she's being whipped, or not whipped, but like it's like punishment. It's, it's meant to be like, I'm angry, and I'm taking it out on the way I'm tightening your corset strings. Yeah. It's, uh, Titanic is a, um, is a classic. And Two very enthusiastic thumbs up. <laughs> Fine holiday fun. Two very enthusiastic thumbs up. Fine holiday fun. All right, so we're going to do the, the, the coin toss, and I would just encourage everyone, please write into moviehilo at gmail.com, or hit us up on Facebook or on Instagram. Let us know your highs and your lows in terms of greatest movies of all time and worst movies of all time. We would love to read your recommendations live. We're going to do the coin toss. And the coin toss is heads. We've actually got a recommendation. John writes, great episode on 12 Monkeys, but how have you not already covered the goat when it comes to time travel movies? Back, Back to, the, to future. the future. Okay. Well, so John. Well, John. Thanks for writing in, and we're gonna rectify this next week with our high episode on Back to the Future. There it is. Thank you for writing in. Thanks for listening to another episode of Movie High Low. I'm Dom. This is Dean. And we will see you next week with Robert Zemeckis' Back to the Future. Never let go.